Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. We learned today that the Ontario Police College is no longer going to be testing their recruits in physical fitness. In order to pass, in order to graduate, you are no longer going to have to reach a certain level of fitness. Let me read from a report about this. It says the physical readiness evaluation for police, which is PrEP, Test consists of an interval training course that assesses a recruit's overall fitness level, strength, and endurance. According to this memo from the police college, prep testing will no longer be a component of the basic constable training program. Instead, new recruits will take part in a foot chase course, which the college says is reflective of their day-to-day duties as a police officer. However, the foot chase course will not be graded at the college and a successful completion of the course will not be required in order to graduate, the memo said. A police fitness test known as the PIN test has also been scrapped. Now, when I heard this, honestly, my first reaction was this is nuts. Surely we want our graduating police officers who are young and moving into the police service. We want them to be in shape. We want them to be ready to do their jobs well. And I I would assume, I think from what I little I know about policing, that requires a level of fitness. And I'm not the only one. There are experts go online. You can read all kinds of stories from experts online who use words like alarming to describe this. So is it alarming? Is it a problem that this is being dumped? Terry Coleman has decades of police experience as an officer in Calgary, including in the organized crime investigation department, outlaw motorcycle gang investigations, mounted unit, canine unit, on and on. He became the police chief in Moose Jaw. Uh, While he was there, he was the president of the Saskatchewan Association of Chiefs of Police, the Saskatchewan director of the board of the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police. He was awarded the Order of Merit for Police Forces by the Governor General. He has been the Deputy Minister of Corrections, Public Safety and Policing for the government and the Deputy Minister of Municipal Affairs. In other words, he has some background in this. Today, he teaches criminal justice at Athabasca University. He joins us now. Terry, thanks for doing this today. Oh, you're more than welcome. Uh, do we not, when, when I first heard this, go back to my initial comment, do we not want our police officers coming out of police college in tip-top shape for the stuff that they're going to have to do, assuming they're going to run into people on the street or whatever else it's going to require them to have a good level of fitness? Well, we certainly want fit police officers. Um, there are some factors during a person's career where they're not as fit as they might be. But let me back up. I see the Ministry of Safety and Correctional Services said that individual police office, uh, services are responsible for ensuring their recruits are physically able to perform the duties of the position. So although the Ontario Police College, which has been severely underfunded for many years, is no longer providing this and it's not a requirement for graduation, it hasn't been abandoned totally. Uh, The responsibility is already being shared, I think, somewhat by individual police agencies, but they put it back uh, perhaps where it belongs, and that is on each individual police service. From your experience, do the police services do this? Do most police departments across the country have or set some sort of physical baseline that officers must reach? Yes, they do, and it usually is tied into graduation from uh, a police college or a police academy. And these uh, tests, and there's about three or four across the country, PAIR and POPAT is another one in addition to PrEP that you mentioned, uh, they were challenged, sort of similar tests were challenged quite some years ago, and there was a Supreme Court of Canada ruling, the Myron uh, case, that they had to be based on bona fide operational requirements. And, and that makes sense. 
accepted after a police officer is, shall we say, operational, is active police officer, um, it's it's not possible to hold them uh, to that standard. Uh, they don't have to be compliant, and that results from uh, tribunals such as arbitration tribunals and decisions of arbitrators that you can't uh, you can't insist on them taking this test and maintaining that standard. So to get hired, you have to meet the standard, but once you're in, once you pass your probation, you're good. Yes, that's pretty much the way it is. Now, they, uh, all police agencies that I know, large and small, either have in-house gyms in their various uh, division uh, offices or uh, district offices or whatever the case may be, and they're quite well equipped and have been for some time, or in some of the smaller police agencies, they'll pay subscriptions for their police officers to uh, join the local uh, YM or some fitness uh, uh, gym. So uh, it's very much um, well catered for by police agencies and, and employees that are encouraged to uh, stay fit. But if I am a, let's say I'm an officer who comes to work on day one as a recruit and a year later, five years later, whatever it is, I suddenly, for whatever reason, balloon up to 50 pounds or 60 or 100 pounds over my starting weight, is there anything that the department really can do about it? Well, yes and no. Um, I, I like the uh, the uh, encouragement and that's, that's funded by the police agency where the uh, police officer, the employee, um, every couple of years has a full uh, fitness assessment by, uh, by a person well qualified for that and might even include a kinesiologist. And they look at the uh, physical wellness and even the mental wellness of the employee um, and if there, and that would all be confidential, it wouldn't be released to the back to the police service, and then they would be referred to specialists to help them uh, get their weight back in control or um, wh- whatever other issue might be uh, um, identified. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Chatting with Terry Coleman, who's a policing expert, former police chief, about the Ontario Police College get rid of, getting rid of their fitness requirements for recruits when they come out of that college. And Terry, you know what? We were just talking about whether or not an, a, a police department can do anything about a cop or whoever if they were to suddenly balloon up or get way out of shape. I, I, let me back up for one second because there's probably a bigger question that I've missed altogether. Is policing still a physically demanding job? Because it's definitely, policing is definitely different than it was 40 or 50 years ago. Is it still physically demanding? Oh, yes, overall it is. And there's sometimes when it's more physically demanding than others. But one of the health hazards is uh, spending extended periods of time sitting in a car, you know, even if you're going from place to place. But uh, there's a variety of reasons where a person's health could, uh, physical health, um, could be challenged. And it's not just um, running and chasing after people, but that, of course, still exists. And, and that's what we think of. When this whole topic comes up, that's what we're thinking of, is if a, if a police officer has to chase someone down or wrestled with someone or whatever else. That, that's, I think, what most people are thinking of when this topic arises. Well, it's still an important piece there. I mean, a foot chase is not unheard of by any means. So, uh, yeah, yeah, we should still, still keep that in mind. Policing, though, and again to the physical part, you know, back in the day, I guess you, if you were a cop, you had to be, and you were on the street, you had to be able to take care of yourself because you may actually have some 
physical confrontations. Policing has changed enough that we're trying to discourage that though. So does it make it less so as far as the need for great physical fitness? I, I don't know about great physical fitness. I think to be physically fit. Now there's some special units in police agencies where one needs to be even fitter and the SWAT ERT type teams are, are an example of that. Um, but overall, I don't see it's changed a lot in that regard. But um, wrestling somebody to the ground is not quite... Uh, oh, it still happens. I'm quite confident of that. But uh, we have various tools now that uh, if somebody is non-compliant or uh, things aren't going as well as they should, that uh, we can use instead of taking hold of somebody and wrestling to the ground. That's for sure. You were not, best of my knowledge, you were not part of this decision and not uh, spoken to by the police college for this, but what's your suspicion of why now? Why this decision? Has this been something that's been in the works for a long time and they're just doing it now, or has something changed that has brought this to the fore? Well, um, I haven't talked to anybody from the college, and I wasn't involved in this decision or even consulted, but I haven't talked to anybody from the college for about a month now on a totally different matter. But... um, They've been underfunded for a long time. Um, they've been challenged to add any uh, new types of learning that, that is desperately needed at the college because they don't have time. Um, and one of those, of course, has come from uh, some reports uh, released in Ontario about uh, spending more time on uh, de-escalation and defusing of crisis situations. And to do that properly, it, it'll take... Um, kind of 40 hours at least during the course of the uh, the new police officer's training. So w- without talking to them and not knowing the real answer, I suspect it's a combination of still being underfunded and trying to find room for something else, which is likely because of the reports that I've read out of Ontario is around the uh, de-escalation, defusing in of, uh, crisis situations. There have been suggestions by people, and I'm not talking about just people like me who are on the outside, but people involved in policing. There have been suggestions already used in reports that this was cancelled because there were so many officers that were failing this test, they believed, and so let's just get rid of the test rather than have the officers not do that well at it. Do you lean that way? Do you think that's probably a case or your experience from those who are graduating? No, they probably mostly passed. It's just what you said before. It's possible, and I don't know the particular situation in regard to that particular question from OPC, but I do know uh, when people are applying to be police officers, um, the the tests that are in place um, tend to eliminate some people, um, and sometimes it's it's a few women who don't have the same upper body strength that um, some men or many men might have. And other than failing that test, they uh, they would make really good police officers. So they're eliminated. So there is a, there is a problem in that regard. And there were some adjustments made to the times required for these tests a few years ago. Uh, but I still think it's eliminating some people that uh, it shouldn't. But whether there is a high failure rate at the college come graduation. I don't know the answer to that right now. That is always, and we only have a few seconds left here, and we need more than this time, but that is always the concern with anything, whether it's firefighters or whatever, and that we are lowering the bar despite the fact that the requirements of the job are still where they were. So what do you say to that then? There may be some people who, male or female, who couldn't pass this 
what if they need those strengths or that fitness level or those abilities on the job and we're reducing it to make them, does that not make it more dangerous? Does that not make them less able to do the job when they actually get on the street? Well, yeah, it's a balancing act in determining, and it's a bit arbitrary, uh, whether it's four minutes and 40 seconds or four minutes and 10 seconds to complete whatever the test might be. But as I said earlier on, I would refer, uh, when they're applying, for sure, they would, uh, the police agency would use a contract physician to uh, do a fitness um, assessment of the applicant uh, as long as that position is well versed in what the uh, what a police officer has to do, rather than a more sophisticated test like this, and then I implement something like they did in Regina about test, uh, having voluntary assessments every two years, funded by the transit company, and then referred to specialists to, uh, to sort of help their physical wellness and health and fitness. Terry Coleman, former police chief, uh, really appreciate the time today. Thank you for doing this. You're welcome. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Slipping around today online and I saw an ad for a remake of Mary Poppins, which I had not known was coming out, which is fine, I guess. Uh, Emily Blunt will be starring in it. Dick Van Dyke has a cameo role somewhere in there. But my initial reaction, to be honest, after I watched it was, does Mary Poppins really need a reboot? Do we need a new version of a movie that seemed perfectly good, that was seen as a classic, that has been seen as a classic by generations of people, uh, that seems to have satisfied people for decades? Do we need, are we, are we arrogant enough to believe that we can do it better now? Maybe we can, I don't know. But then I got thinking, well, wait a second, The Lion King is also coming out as a reboot. There's a redo of The Lion King, and I think there's a redo of Little Mermaid, and Aladdin has one coming out, and I didn't think there was anything. The kids, when my kids were young, growing up, they seemed totally fine. All the kids seemed fine with that. Well, then I started doing a little looking. Now I was intrigued, and I found out that right now, and this is far from a complete list. This is, this is far. I could give you five times the number of movies I'm going to tell you right now. But movies that are in the works right now for remakes include Ace Ventura, American Werewolf in London, The Birds, as in Hitchcock, The Blob, Charlie's Angels, Creature from the Black Lagoon, Dash Boot, Death Wish, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, Every Which Way But Loose, Flash Gordon, The Fly, Invasion of the Body Smatcher, uh, Snatchers, Major League, Naked Gun, Pet Cemetery, Police Academy, Predator, Rambo, Scarface, Shaft, Splash, The Ten Commandments, Terms of Endearment, Weird Science, dozens and dozens of others. I don't know what this means. It just seems very odd. Seems very odd. Let me bring in Dr. Scott Henderson. He's an associate professor at Brock University. Teaches classes in theories of popular culture, popular cinema, uh, film theory. Uh, Scott, thanks for doing this today. Oh, pleasure, Scott. I read these names. I look at the movies that they're doing, and my initial reaction is it sounds like Hollywood has basically just given up. Whatever. Just We know what works. Let's just do those again. I can see why anyone would think that way. I mean, you can, you can find websites online that list all of these upcoming remakes. And you think, wow, it's, it's, it's a huge list. It but, is. But then historically, I mean, from the get-go, I think the cinema industry was doing remakes. I mean, a lot of the very, very earliest silent films were already remakes of whether they were had been comic strips or they'd been kind of live shows 
books. I mean, I guess it's not really a remake as an adaptation, but this long history of, you know, retelling the same stories. So is it simply, have we always, even though we think of it now, probably as nostalgia, has nostalgia driven Hollywood right from day one, essentially then? I think to some degree. And, you know, giving audiences something that they're familiar with. I mean, I think, you know, I guess there's a reason that the Oscars, they give away best adapted screenplay and best original screenplay. <laughs> and it's because, you know, adaptation is a bit of an art. And, you know, whether adapting a, a previous film, a book, a comic book, wherever we're kind of working from, Hollywood knows that, hey, you've got a ready-made audience. I can imagine going to mm. a producer or a studio and saying, hey, we know that this is sold well in the past. Do you know who's going to come watch this? Right. So you do The Lion King, which I believe is coming out in the spring, which is, it's not really live action, but it's more live action than the original one. And you say, well, look, when mom and dad, who now have kids, when they were kids, they loved The Lion King. They sang along to all the songs. We know they're going to bring their kids out to this, and they'll probably come out even by themselves on a date night. Bingo. Big money maker. Oh, I think for sure. I mean, and that's one of the things that's striking in that list you kind of started with. You've got Aladdin in there, Little Mermaid, Mulan. You've got Lion King, as you say. It's, you know, and that's exactly who it's aimed at. These are the people who are now parents who will bring their kids. And you can kind of say that may be a guaranteed audience for a revitalized or renewed version of this. So this is ultimately, and maybe I should not be even a little bit surprised, but this is ultimately all about money, not necessarily about art. It might be a bit of both. I mean, you know, it, there is a talent in remaking something that was a cartoon into a live action or semi-live action. And, you know, we've had very good reinterpretations of, you know, the same source material and very bad reinterpretations. So you know, people can put a really good twist on it. I mean, the, the upcoming Star is Born came out of the Toronto Film Festival and previews with Rays for Lady Gaga's performance in there. This is the third time that this film has come out. So, okay, um, to my point that I started, and there are movies, and I didn't even include all of them, as I say, the list of the movies that are in the works right now as remakes is way longer than what I read. I read some of the high points, which probably doesn't help with what I'm asking next, because there are some bad movies that are getting redos. And with those ones, Scott, you can probably say, yeah, you know what? They weren't much to begin with. So if someone thinks they can make lemonade out of lemons, knock yourself out. That, that, that seems to be one where you go, okay, sure. If there's a good idea, if there's a germ of an idea in there and you can do better, go for it. That's a good idea, right? Yeah. And I think that's what, you know, I think some of these projects are looking to, they're thinking, okay, somebody bought this way back when, 30, 40 years ago, this was presented and someone said, wow, that would be a great film. And then someone went out and made it and it was a terrible film. <laughs> so you know, so now you've got people saying, well, hey, if the idea is sold in the first place, something must be there's there. merit to it, right? There's got to be something if we can just get the right stars attached or the right director or the right screenwriter here to, to you know, make this into something better. And I get that. That, that to me does make sense. But then I see names, titles on the list of movies that are being remade of the 10 commandments and Scarface and Dosh Boot, which I don't know how many people have seen, but is a classic. And I'm thinking, wait a second, that, that, making a dud again into something better was one thing. Are we really going to do better than the 10 commandments or really do better than Scarface in a remake of that same movie? Yeah, and th those are the ones I wonder about. The, the iconic films that... It's a great word. Are, are, the, the ones that are kind of burned into our mind. This is how they look and how they are. How can you 
redo that. Like, you know, we had that attempt, what, gosh, it must be 20 years ago now, when the, the remade Psycho came out, the kind of shot-for-shot mm. remake. I mean, what was the point? The original was stuck with people. And, <laughs> you know, I mean, there's Mary Poppins. I know it's Mary Poppins Returns, and it's kind of a sequel, but kind of a revisiting of the original that the quintessential Mary Poppins is there. And like, I can't imagine a remake of the sound of music for the big screen. Exactly. You know, exactly. I, I did a TV one and you know, it kind of flopped because people already really love and still return to that original. You're listening to the Scott Radley show podcast on 900 CHML. Talking with Scott Henderson, Dr. Scott Henderson of Brock University, pop culture professor, movie professor, talking about this litany of remakes that are being done. And Scott, just before the break, you used the perfect word for this because we're talking about, again, if you make a what was a terrible movie into a good one, that's one thing. But when you start tinkering around with iconic, and that was your word and it was perfect, when you start tinkering around with iconic movies... In addition to, I don't know how well it's going to do at the box office, do you not tick some people off as well? Oh, for sure, because you've got people who already love the original, who know it. I, I sometimes wonder, who who is making these, and what are they thinking when they're doing it? Because you know the original is already there and just so well loved that you know the bigger risk is ticking people off. And I mean, a lot of times it's the same thing with book adaptations. People kind of imagine how it should be and they get outraged when favorite scenes or favorite characters Mm. are somehow altered or dropped from the book. And I think that's low risk giving the kind of, you know, readership versus kind of film viewership. But when you've got a huge audience and you're going to tinker, I don't know if that really works. It's, It's the middling films, I think, that do the best, right? The ones that have a core good idea, there's enough of an audience, and maybe you can update things like the special effects. Or they or, weren't executed know. right. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Make things a little more modern. You know, the, the fly is in that list of ones that might get remade. Mm. And maybe that's a good example, because the Jeff Goldblum one from the late 80s was already a remake of a one from 30 years earlier. So here we are, another 30 years of film technology, and we can think, okay, Let's see what we can do now to tell this story because it, it, it's a very effective story. It clearly resonates with people, but not so memorable that it's kind of etched in our minds. And maybe if they redo it, they can take out the scene with George Chavallo having his arms snapped in half because that one always just freaked me out when I watched that um, that scene. Uh, but there must be some movies then that are completely untouchable. I mean, nobody is ever going to, I, I, I would think, nobody's ever going to come to a studio and say, let's redo The Wizard of Oz. You'd be out of your mind or, or Citizen Kane or, you know, whatever. But there's got to be a handful that even the most audacious director is never going to say, I'm willing to take a stab at it. Yeah. Unless you count The Wiz. As, as a, yeah, the Michael Jackson and Diana Ross, right. But, but weirdly, The Wizard of Oz was a remake. There was an earlier really? film based on the novel. And then, you know, the, the 1939, the classic, was actually technically a remake of that but they turned it into then it became a classic so if you remake it i guess but once it's hit that classic status it seems pretty untouchable yeah because now everybody's seen it everyone pictures it in their mind and it's got to be this way i just can't see that working whereas something a star is born there's a kind of you know iconic redemption tale you know it it worked with judy garland it worked with barbara streisand and it Hmm. seems like it's going to work with lady gaga but that's because you can update it for every era. So the, the star resonates. The story 
resonates as a kind of story that people can really follow. And again, there's, there's an iconic element to that storytelling, but the films themselves don't stick around. So I think that's where it kind of works really well. But yeah, film that's just part of our kind of pop culture imagination, really hard to redo and remake that. There's another thing about a lot of these remakes that really strikes me. And again, after I saw this Mary Poppins ad uh, trailer online today, I went and watched the Lion King one and then the little, a lot of the remakes seem to be a lot darker and a lot scarier, quite frankly, a lot more intense. The Lion King, I mean, if I'm a six-year-old kid, now when the first Lion King came out, the animated one, you could put a two-year-old in front of that and it would have been fine. It's it's pretty intense now if you're six or seven or eight years old, this new one. Yeah, so this is kind of ramping up, and I don't know if it's that we imagine childhood differently, if we live in somehow slightly darker times, or it's because these are being reimagined, as you were suggesting earlier, not really for the kids, for the parents, right? That's That's the audience you're kind of looking for who will then bring along the kids. While... I don't know. I, I don't love this idea. I would rather that Hollywood, that the entertainment industry be creative as was their bread and butter. Uh, you do point out this has been going on for a long time. And so maybe I've just forgotten, but you know, then I turn around and I say, well, wait a second. Musicians are doing cover versions of songs all the time. How is this really any different? Yeah. I always look at cover versions as, you know, they can be sometimes ironic. You're kind of picking a song that's way outside. And we had that fun back and forth between Weezer and Toto around Africa. And I think mm. Toto did Hashpipe maybe from, from Weezer, but, you know, or bands kind of paying homage to somebody. And, you know, so that reinterpretation works. It's a new band. I think it's a little bit different than kind of remaking the film and retelling the same story. I mean, sometimes a good remake can work as a bit of an homage. I think, think that's what Gus Van Sant was trying with Psycho when he tried to do mm. it shot for shot and say, okay, let me really think about what Hitchcock was doing, but it doesn't really work for audiences in the same way. And again, that was the strangest one. Cause I, I agree with you. What was the point? If you're going to make the exact same movie to look exactly the same, uh, just get a, a photocopier or something. I mean, I don't know what you do. Uh, just before I let you go though, even if you or I or anyone else listening is sort of going, ah, I don't know, come on, you can do better than this. There's no doubt that Mary Poppins, Lion King, Little Mermaid, all these, they're going to make a fortune, right? No matter what. Exactly. They'll, they'll make good money. And, you know, in an era, I think, you know, Hollywood is struggling. I don't know if it's for ideas, but the good writing, everyone says it's going to streaming. It's going to you know, these television series on Netflix or HBO. And what Hollywood has left in its arsenal, I think, is, you know, big special effects or very, very familiar kind of titles and archetypes that we can grab onto. And, you know, the Marvel Universe is a perfect mm-hmm. example. I mean, those are some of those are remakes. I mean, how many spider, I guess Spider-Man or Spider-Man? <laughs> sure which way, which or way Batman or Batman, yeah. Yeah, with that, have we seen? And they're already kind of rebooting these franchises. So they know when they have something like that, that that's, they've got to kind of get every dollar out of it that they can. Dr. Scott Henderson, Associate Professor at Brock University. Appreciate you coming on today. Thanks for doing this. Pleasure, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Unabomber's real name was not Bubba O'Neill. That's the guy we have on the line right now from CHCH Sports. Sir, how are you today? Well, I try to have generally better intentions. Yeah, and, and fewer hoodies. Yes. yes. <laughs> we, don't, we don't see a lot of Bubba doing the sports in hoodies and dark glasses. No, no. I mean, the, the day I do that will be my final day. Uh, you know... 
<laughs> we all, everybody, I think, in whatever line of work they have, has thought through what their final day thing would be that they would want to do. And I think very few people actually ever follow through. But we've all thought it, haven't we? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and I just know that whatever I do will end up on YouTube. <laughs> do, do, I mean, have you thought through it enough that you wish to share with us what will happen for your blaze of glory? Because there's also, let me interrupt, there's also two possibilities. Because there's the last day when you leave on your own terms and it's happy and you're colleagues are all around you singing and giving you cake. And there's the last day when what's happened to some of your colleagues before when they didn't really have a choice. Those are two very different ways to leave. Absolutely. But I, I'll pick the first one. <laughs> Hopefully. And have you thought about what that would, um, what that would be? Absolutely. But you will never know. <laughs> <laughs> Until that day? You'll hear all about it. I once worked at, an, at another paper with a guy on his last day. We used to, this is, this is a number of years ago, we used to have to fill in the weather report. So it would come across the wire and you would have to just, it was a template and you would type it in. And I remember on his last day that that newspaper the next morning said, uh, uh, um, what was it, sunny during the day, turning darker at night. And on, <laughs> like the whole weather report was just a complete gag and he walked out the door and that was his, thank you very much. Yeah, nothing nothing good- harmful. No, no, that's a good way to remember you, though. Nothing <laughs> harmful. Didn't 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 libel anybody or ruin anyone's life. Just had a little fun. Unless, of course, somebody left the house without their umbrella and got wet. I guess I, <laughs> I like that. Uh, let me ask you this question. We heard today, which I thought was a joke at first. I really did. But we heard today that the two Koreas, North and South Korea, are putting together a joint bid to host the 2032 Summer Olympics. If Bubba O'Neill becomes an Olympic athlete by the year 2032 and you've geared your entire life towards that moment, do you want your Olympics to be held in North Korea? <laughs> um, I mean, we've already seen the Olympics where there was a coming together of the team um, without any problems or issues. So, if this is a further step in towards some type of peace between the two countries, um, we've seen some agreements, you know, though there's been complaints and, you know, by some between the United States and North Korea. Um, you know, you look at when that Olympics is going to, I mean, we're talking about maybe a whole different world by then. So, Could be. You know, I, 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 this is a, I would actually was very surprised, I have to admit, to hear that. But then again, when I thought about it, I thought, you know, they're kind of going in that direction. Maybe not in terms of politics, but in terms of sports, uh, where everyone can put their differences aside for a month, you know, or, or two from two weeks to a month. Um, they can all agree on, you know, on hosting something for the good of, of the two countries. I, I, if I'm an athlete again, and if I've poured my entire life into it, I, there's something about having somewhere special though. And I, I think that on the planet right now, and, and you're right, we could be in a different world. I, I don't have the same optimism. I would think that telling your grandkids, where'd you get to go for the Olympics? Well, n- North Korea. I mean, it like, it just, it seems like such a downer. It really seems like a downer. You know, I actually have had a friend that has gone through there, and did you ever see them again? Yes. Okay. They actually, actually, what they did, funny, they were they were um, there on a on an exchange for for um, for cooking, and he learned a tremendous amount about you know the culture, the cooking, um, food, vegetation, plantation, all that kind of stuff. 
and ended up you know, going to Japan and has been there ever since. And this is probably about 10 years ago, so probably spent a year there. Um, I hear nothing but good things about the country. About North Korea? Yes, about, about the beauty of the country, um, the friendliness of the people. Um, You're talking about North Korea, not South Korea. No, I'm talking North Korea. And, and, and I, I, you know, again, Scott, I believe this is, I mean, our, our thoughts of, the, of this country and dictatorship and all of that, it's, 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 it's all on a government, you know, politics sort of thing. I mean, we haven't, you know, have we taken the time as Canadians to understand what the people are all about? I think most of us have not. But I don't think the people in North Korea would have anything to do with it. They'd be, they have no ability. They won't be going to the games. See, here's, here's the real problem I have besides the athletes. And that is the IOC. And he, I think the IOC may actually give North Korea and South Korea these games. And because the IOC likes to see itself as this bringer together of the world and all this lofty stuff that they then don't, they, they overlook human rights abuses left, right, and center, and then follow it up with nothing when they leave. So we saw in Beijing there were human rights abuses, and we've seen it in other places, in Sochi, when they were doing stuff. This, is, this to me, should be a reward rather than something you do to try and convince Kim Jong-un or something from doing horrible things for a few this years. Is what I, this is what I'm saying, Scott. I think we've seen, we're seeing a lightening of those things, maybe a change of attitudes uh, uh, that, that maybe generations from now, uh, like I said, we'll be looking at a to- I mean, uh, maybe not a perfect society, and I don't know what society is perfect. We can't sit here in Canada and think that we're perfect here, that everything is okay. Um, that, you know, through sport, that you know what, for, like I said, for a month or two weeks or so, that we can see a coming together of countries and, like, and that, you know what, the people can show the beauty of their country. Um, I mean, let, let's be honest here. It was maybe only 25 years ago, maybe even less, where people thought Russia was this people, that this place with cold-hearted people, that had, you know, were, you know, in a communist country and didn't want to have anything to do with North Americans. Well, again, I've had lots of friends go to, to, to Russia and Moscow, and yeah, there's lots of places that are freezing cold, so there's the same, you can say the same thing about Canada. But I've heard nothing but good things about that country with people that go there. But the people, and I, I'm with you, I think that, you know, the, the Russian people generally, uh, when you use that as an example, absolutely. But this is, the Olympics are a reward for the governing party in these places, or is the really? government. Where did you get that from? Well, they're the ones, that's always been though. They've always been the ones, they're the the leaders are the ones who walk into the arena and they get the, I mean, well, we even know back. They award the games to the place that financially makes the best sense. Yes, yes. Absolutely. It's got, nothing to do with, it's got nothing to do with rewarding anyone or the government or the way people are governed. It's all about who can basically offer the most money and who can have the best facilities. It's always been that way. And if you're North Korea, how are you going to pay for those facilities? Well, it's going to be by taking money that you should be putting into other things because we've seen this again with Beijing and with Russia, and you're going to put it into stuff that is... Uh, we could say the same thing about Canada or the United States. We could, we, 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 we could. No, we totally, we not could, we totally can, Scott. We could, that, but our people aren't Olympic suffering. Games, any Olympic Games 
has has a certain amount of overspending. Oh, 100%. That, that, a certain amount of overspending where that money could be better served. I mean, look at the Pan Am games. Yes, were there benefits from it? Sport-wise, absolutely. Facility-wise, absolutely. But are you not telling me that there was that Burlington Street could have been a better could be a better street than it is now, or some of the downtown core in Hamilton could have improved with some better some better you know some you know cleaning up the city? I mean, like it is you know like they're starting to do now. I mean, let's let's you know we, the we difference. Can't, we can't sit there and call out other countries when we you know we can't look and we look at our own here. Well, the difference is that I don't think our people here are suffering. Whereas a lot of the people, and we know this from report after report from people there, are suffering. This is a, you know, I get your point, and I think it's a well-made point, that there is money that goes into sports events here in Canada that could be put to other things. But I think it's vastly different when you're talking about whether it's a new road or whether it's people having food. Anyway. A lot of people in this country with no food. The one thing I would say to this is, it 2032 is a long way off still, 14 years away if my math is correct, if, if this is something that leads North Korea to decide they're going to get better and better and better as a country, if this is the movement that will push them to that, as opposed to find doing nothing and the IOC deciding that it will make it better. And so five, six, seven years out giving them the games. And so for a few years, they don't put as many people into hard labor camps or assassinate or execute as many people and then go right back to it. If you can establish that this is now a pattern and things are going to change, I might be open to it. I just, I, I, I'm going to need more than just Kim Jong-un or Kim Jong-il or whoever saying, um, yeah, we'll be good. We'll be good because that's, you know, there are enough people there that probably are not going to be hearing that. Anyway, let us move along. We've got one more thing I want to get to you on here today. And that is, speaking of bonkers reports, ESPN threw out a report today, or at least one of their commentators threw out the suggestion that next year when the Blue Jays are looking for a new manager, which they will because John Gibbons is going to be gone, one of the names that is being tossed about and considered by Mark Shapiro and Ross Atkins to be the manager of the Blue Jays is John Farrell who may be the most hated man in Blue Jays history. I don't know if there's somebody else who's more hated. He's the guy who left to go be the Boston Red Sox manager because that was his dream job and ran out of here as fast as he could. Are, are, if there's any truth to this, if there's even a sliver of truth to this, are Shapiro and Atkins just trolling Blue Jays fans now to try and get them back for something? There's no way this could happen, right? Well, I mean, I never say never in the sports world, that's for sure. But I do I can tell you this, is that John Farrell works a, a pretty good pitching staff. Always has, uh, always did, always has. Um, he's also a World Series champion. Um, there are not very many of those around. Um, with young, I, 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 I mean, I, he had a, a totally different team at the time, much more veteran-laden. Um, and there is a belief that John Farrell is very, very good with kids, um, with young players and developing fundamentals and skills, whereas the guy that's there right now is not that guy. At least, you know, over his history has proven to be much better, much more relaxed, uh, kind of a let the veterans do as they will, run the locker room kind of thing. Um, I have read that a lot about John Farrell. Um, Again, nothing surprises me in sports, and we've seen, we never thought John Gibbons would ever be back twice. That's true. That's we true. Never thought, we never thought Cito Gaston would be, you know, 
uh, back with the Blue Jays twice. Yeah, that was less surprising, but still true. You that know. was that because he had won. Uh, uh, the, the, the difference is here. John Farrell, you, you are in the entertainment business, and Rogers is needing to sell tickets because they're sure. going to be way down in the season ticket department. I'm not sure that the way you do that with a team that's going to be losing a lot and is going to be struggling. I'm not sure the way you build a marketing campaign, because it's all tied in together, is to take the guy who is arguably the most hated guy in team history and say to the fans, here he is, love him. That, that to me, is you're just rubbing people's noses in it at that point. You know, I can't, I can't quite go there, Scott. And I'll tell you, here's the reason why. Sport, sport opposed to many, any other business in the world, is the one that is the most accepting of second chances. And like I said, if there is a reason, you know, like I said, with reasons where I believe where he is good with young players, he is a name, he is a World Series champion. Um, I don't think anyone in the world that I know of goes to pay a, a see a game or not see a game based on who the coach or the manager is. It's all about wins and losses. And you're right. Are season tickets going to be, you know, the lowest they've been in, you know, maybe five years? Most likely. But then again, then again, there could be a quite a little bit of a surge because what the Blue Jays are doing right now, they've had really good series against the Yankees, Red Sox, and obviously they're going to probably torch the Orioles here. With the people are going to want to see the kids here, and I think that's what it will sell Blue Jay fans. Not so much the manager. I do agree with you that he's a guy that left here and was not well liked, obviously because of the way he left. Um, but I will also say this: the management at that time, which was, I believe, Alex Anthopoulos, uh, there was a clause that was in his contract that if a job came up in Boston, because that was a place that he'd wanted to go, that he could go. Yeah, was that Anthopoulos or was that still J.P. Ricciardi? I'm not sure who you know, was on. You're your... right. I have to look. It'll be, it'll be either one of the two. But my point yeah. being more more so, he didn't do anything that was you know a big surprise to the t- to the franchise because that was written into the deal that he could go there if an opportunity, you know, came up. Um, maybe people have lightened up. He's a cancer survivor. Um, maybe there are lessons he has learned. He might be the first ever yeah. cancer survivor who gets booed. <laughs> I mean, you're right. That That's one of those things where, you know, most people, regardless of the circumstance, go, oh, you know what, uh, yeah, how can I not like that guy because of what he's gone through? This may be the one guy who people go, yeah, you survived cancer, good for you, I'm happy, but boo. But I will say this, Scott, have you ever booed a manager in baseball before? Uh, yes. Well, no, I've seen it. I'll put it this, I've seen it when um, at the beginning of this year when the Philadelphia Phillies were getting started and uh, what's his name, who's the uh, uh, the Phillies, the, the the most jacked manager in, in all of baseball, Um can't think of his name. He was doing some weird stuff at the start of the year. Every time he stuck his head out of the dugout, the fans were just giving it to him. Okay, I do remember that. That's the right, the former player. That's right. Uh, I'll think now, of his name in a second. But that was more so decision-based, right? Like, yes. Like, I think, you know, pulling pitchers before, you know, they had an opportunity to pull a no-hitter and then pulling the pitcher. I, I don't know. I mean, again, I, I don't think... Gabe Kapler. Gabe Kapler, there you go. Like I said, he was a former player. I just don't know if that will prevent people from buying tickets to go see a, a team is, is the manager. Like, 
know. I, yeah, I don't know. I don't. I and again, it's there is something. I was talking last night in studio here with Don Robertson about guys with the Buffalo Bills player um, quitting on the team at halftime. Oh yes. It was. You know, John Farrell, to a lot of Blue Jays fans, when he left, even though you're right, it was in his contract and he could do it, it was perceived that he quit on the team because he left and didn't stick around. That, that to me, is a real tough one to overcome. John Gibbons came back, but he had been let go, and so it wasn't his choice. And Cito Gaston came back, and whether Cito Gaston had left of his own accord or been fired, there was enough goodwill in Blue Jays fans' memory banks after those two World Series that he could come back and do it anyway. I, I just don't know. I think, and you know what else? I mean, look, I don't want to poke too much at our industry, uh, although I'm willing to a little bit. The media would be absolutely ruthless on this guy. Like, he, he would not get a break at yeah. all. Until, until the Jays break out on a 15-5 to run to start the season, and everyone will shut up. You are such an optimist. <laughs> <laughs> you thinking the Blue Jays at any point next year will go 15 and 5. Uh, if that's 15 losses and 5 wins, I'm with you. <laughs> but, but I think you are a, uh, a cockeyed optimist if you think there's going to be a 15 and 5 streak next year. Uh, just, uh, just, uh, just hope your producer has this on tape. Yeah, we'll keep that. We'll keep it because we'll save it. And when that happens, Lisa's giving me the thumbs up. We will play this on repeat. We'll build a, a dance track around it, we'll turn it into a song. Bubba's greatest hits. Bubba O'Neill from CHCH. You can catch him tonight at 11 uh, for sports and for weather right there on CHCH. Thanks for doing this tonight. Appreciate it. Always a pleasure. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.